0: Hey, next on the Teen Nation, thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the show. What's coming up in the next 55 or so minutes is probably one of the most joyful, positive, fun segments that I've ever done. I get to have time with Brian Kachuk, who is just so great at what he does. He is the standard by which the rest of us, I know, at least in my opinion, should be trying to live up to. He's the best in the business whether it's co-hosting his regular radio show, Katrick and McGinnis with John McGinnis, which you can hear on Sirius XM channel 92, which you can hear during the week, or if it is captaining, if you will, a golf tournament and sending you out to the action so we can hear what's going on. Brian is just the absolute gold standard of what we hear on radio. And uh, I'm privileged to get to spend some time with him. It, Like I say, it's just one of the best hours over the eight years of doing this show. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay, now next on the tee with me is, in my opinion, the best radio and golf broadcast host in the business, and that's Brian Katrick. Brian is the standard by which anyone in radio and those of us hosting podcasts should strive to be like. He's positive, funny, knowledgeable. He makes hosting both his radio show with John McGinnis, Katrick and McGinnis on tap, which you can hear on PGA Tour Radio on Sirius XM Channel 92. Plus, radio tournament broadcasts look and sound easy, which we all know they're not. Brian is an Emmy Award winner. He's been hosting television and radio broadcasts going back to 1999 for entities like Turner Sports, PGA.com, and now SiriusXM. Brian caddied out on the PGA Tour, the Champions Tour, and the LPGA Tour. Back in 2013, he finished seventh in the Golf Channel Amateur Tour National Championship. He won 10 times out on that tour. Locally, he's won the Smyrna City Championship five times, and I'm very honored to have him with me today here on Next on the T. Hey, Brian, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Chris, it is great to be on with you. You yourself do such tremendous work. I am thrilled to be here.
0: I appreciate you, Brian. I always like to start with a new guest by going back to the beginning of when you first started playing the game. Who was the first person to put a club in your hand?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So I didn't really have that, that start as a child like everybody else did. Um, messed around with it from time to time. Uh, went, went on a golf vacation somewhere and the, somebody had dropped the three wood. We, We were staying, we were staying on a hole. Golf wasn't even a part of my life, but there was a three wood laying in the rough and so my friend and I had picked it up. We didn't even know you're supposed to go turn it in. Uh, we picked it up and we played that hole a few times over the course of the few days we were there. We wound up leaving the three wood leaning against the tree. So I'm hoping somebody got it back. Uh Didn't know what we were doing. Had no idea. It really wasn't until I I met my my wife and it was before we were married, but but her family was the golf family. So it was, Pretty late in life before I got my first set of golf clubs.
0: Brian, you're one of the most decorated players now around the state of Georgia. You've won several local amateur events. Talk about some of your favorite memories. And as your game got better and better, when you thought, you know what? Hey, I might be pretty good at this thing. Uh, Well, you're very kind to put it that way. I love
1: your attitude. Uh, there's, there's way better players than me. I've had a couple of shining moments, which have been nice. Uh, the the early days of PGA tour radio before, before satellite radio was even invented, I was working with a gentleman by the name of Greg Powers, the PGA tour veteran, the lifetime member. And he's just such a great teacher. And we were working in Norcross because the office was in Norcross. He lived over there. He is a member, like all tour players are at all the TPCs, so we could go over to TPC Sugarloaf. And so as a 24-year-old, 23-year-old, however old I was, I had, uh, had expert eyes, just a great attitude. He's one of the great teachers. He won the national championship in the uh, PGA Junior League coaching that Sugarloaf team. So he's been coaching young people for a long time you know, I'd go over there to watch him hit balls and it would immediately turn into him watching me hit balls. So, and that went on for multiple years where a couple days a week, I'm going to a TTC course with a tour player to hit balls until dark. It's not hard to get good or at least get decent in a short period of time when you got that sort of a uh, good fortune, that sort of guidance. So, so for me, I mean, that's you know, I loved competing no matter what sport I played. Golf was an easy one to uh, try to compete with. Uh, you mentioned the Smyrna city championships. That's a, uh, that's such a fun natured, lighthearted event, but there's always 10 or 15 guys that are, that are grinding and they're trying to win it. And I was always one of those guys. So to come out on top of, of a group like that, when you got to write down your score for two days and, you know, you got to, Really have to play by the rules. You got to keep. Not, not everybody plays by the rules, but those ten or fifteen guys, we're, we're pretty sure are all playing by the rules. <laughs> those are the only guys that mattered, anyway. I, mean, I promise you, the mayor was not playing by all of the rules, nor did we need him to. <laughs> uh, so there's some moments. You know, I qualified for the 2015 U.S. Mid Am. Uh, shot a shot around in the 60s up at Cobblestone to get into the tournament. And, you know, that was my first and at this point only USGA championship I've ever qualified for. They don't hand them to you. You got to get in. And I had gotten in. And, of course, as you know, the winner of that, the winner of the U.S. Mid-Am, gets in the Masters. Yeah. So not only was I competing for a national championship, but I was competing to then play in a tournament that I would be fortunate enough to work. And. You know that that made my head spin right there. You know when that when you're playing at that level, that that was pretty nice. You know that was. I mean, there were plenty of things along the way. Made made aces. I shot 29 at Rivermont in a in a Georgia section PGA event. Uh, made the cut the State Open. Uh, things that a low level uh you know low level guy like me would find. You know I'd love to tell you that I won three PGA Tour events, <laughs> but I didn't. It's these little accomplishments that I have to that I have to hang on to, and, but I'm very proud of them.
0: As you should be. So let's go back to that 29. You get off to that hot start. Like at, at what point does, did did you allow any of that? Because where we all start to go wrong, we amateurs anyway, is we get ahead of ourselves. I've I got a <laughs> couple of birdies here. I, I could shoot X, right? At what point did you start to have something start to creep into your mind like, I'm on a heater here? Uh, I don't
1: know, but I do know that by the time I got to it, it was the back nine at Rivermont, but it was my first nine of the tournament, 36-hole Georgia section event, one of those great two-day events that they run, and Chris Cupid does a great job, and Mark Hoban and his staff, Hoban's the superintendent there at Rivermont. I've always loved Rivermont, and what Chris decided to do by, by kind of roughing up the edges. And I believe he brought Mike Riley in to do it. Uh, I just thought their work was brilliant. So I was in a good mood the whole time. Um, and once you get through 17, then you can look at a scorecard. That 17th hole is that downhill par three and you got to get Chris on one time and let him tell you the evil Knievel story about the 17th hole at Rivermont. It will be worth your while. Um, but the golf side of it is that that's, that's the hole you got to get past. And then, and then I realized that, hey, you know, hey, I've got, uh, I've got a chance at something here that I might never do again. And while that's probably the terrible mental process to go through to, to be aware that this putt, and I, I hit it in there close, probably ten feet for a for a birdie, and what would be a twenty nine. And I'm thinking a player of my caliber is probably only going to get one chance at this. And you know, probably wasn't even going to get that chance. But here I was driving up in the cart. I had my chance. So I was, you know, I already had that one. Uh so, you know, the thought was, this is probably gonna be it. Then the thought was, this is a terrible mental thought process to have. <laughs> and then the thought was, Well, who cares? <laughs> you know, <laughs> none of this matters. <laughs> I think it's left edge, let's see what happens. And uh, and I knocked it in. So I was actually I did a great job of I guess not getting ahead of myself. Uh I was I'm positive I was over par on the other nine. But still, in contention, coming into the the second day, the final day, I'm in the last group uh, with Tim Weinhart and uh, Chris Nickel, who would go on to win, by the way. Uh, So, spoiler alert, it wasn't me. But I birdied the first hole, to tie for the lead. And Mike Blum, who is just a tremendous local golf writer, has covered the game at a national level also. but. But Blum is there because he's going to write the article. And I know Mike, because I've worked with Mike for a long time. And all of a sudden I realize Mike is there to write the story about who's going to win this tournament. And it might be me. So I have birdied the first hole. There are 17 holes left to play. I'm tied for the lead. And I start giving him quotes. <laughs> i <I've, laughs> now I I did it I did it somewhat tongue in cheek. I did it a lot to piss Tim Weinhart off, which worked. but I did realize that maybe just because you birdied the first hole, it's not time to speak to the press just yet. And uh, I would go on to, to resoundingly not win that golf tournament, but they can't take my 29 away.
0: Absolutely not. And Hey, let's not undersell shooting 66 at cobblestone either, by the way. And that's one of my favorite local golf courses. It's not easy out there. Talk about that round.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think it may have been 69. It was in the 60s. And the only reason I know it is, uh, because we had some, we had some lineup changes at Sirius XM going on at the time. And, uh, John McGinnis, my partner, is just, just the greatest partner ever. And for whatever reason, the dominoes fell to where we were doing the morning show that morning. So I was doing the morning show, Cobblestone. Wow. Uh, the show ended at, 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. Whatever the whatever time the show ended is my tea time was 10 minutes from then. So you know I already had my I already had my shoes on, so I mean I'm ready. But I've been sitting there for two hours. The show's two hours long. I was there before the sun came up, so it's not like I hit balls and then did the show for two hours. I'm sitting in the back seat of my truck, doing the radio show because our remote equipment has the ability to do that. We're we're very lucky. Uh, so. So, and they're taping the show. They're going to rerun that show in the afternoon, but we're online. And the last thing John says to me before we, before we end the show and I got to get out of the truck and go to the first D is, Hey, just go shoot something with a six in front of it. And then you won't have to worry about the afternoon. And I just had that in the back of my head all day. And it was one of, I just got goosebumps again. Cause I got to send the text later in the day that said I shot something with a six in front of it and I think it's gonna be good enough. And it was. So wow. it was it was a day I'm not sure that I even made a bogey. I may have made one. Just one of those days where cutting along and plodding along and kinda of, you know, the pessimistic view was you waiting for the waiting for the other shoe to drop and for something bad to happen and finally we get to the the last hole and nothing bad had happened yet. <laughs> so uh, actually missed a birdie putt, uh, a short one. that wouldn't have made any difference because uh, somebody shot, I think, 29 on the back nine there that day. So whoever the medalist was, walked away with it. But there were three or four spots, and uh, I got one easily. That, that birdie putt wasn't going to make me medalist, and it, you know, doesn't. You know, it's pass fail,
0: and I had passed, and
1: uh, I couldn't believe it.
0: Brian, you also caddied out on tour. What made you go that route, and how did that opportunity come your way?
1: Yeah, it's all for friends. Uh, it was never as a, uh, as a living, although, you know, if we'd have won any of those things, I could have still been doing it. Uh, so back in the terrestrial PGA Tour radio days, we didn't do the British Open. So we had that week off, and Greg Powers would go play in the BC Open. And so this was the year that uh, David Duvall won, the British. And we were over. Happened to also be the week I believe that Charles Howell III made his professional debut. It was one of those early weeks in the career of Charles Howell III. But uh, we go up to Endicott, New York, and I carried for carried the bag for Greg, and that was a blast. Uh, Greg then would go on to qualify for the U.S. Senior Open, which was at Caves Valley, uh, which we just played the BMW Championship there last year. That's where uh, where Bryson and Patrick Cantlay had their big that big playoff duel. So I actually had caddied there because uh, I, Greg allowed me to caddy for him in the U.S. Senior Open. That was a heck of an honor. The funny thing about that is, you know, I'm showing up. I've got a media credential and, and a caddy credential, and I'm really just seeing where which one I get a better parking spot with. <laughs> <You> know, <that's, laughs> Whichever credential allowed me to park closer, that's the one I was going to use. <laughs> um, and then uh, Mark Carnivale, a few years, uh, not not too long ago, was in a position where in order to be eligible for the champions tour, he had to enter Q school. Uh, There's various ways that these guys maintain their level of activity and he hadn't played enough tour events. So he had to enter Q school. He didn't have to advance through it. He just had to enter. So I went and carried the bag down there at the Ombre down in Panama city. It's uh, a few years back, back when the Ombre was still open, but uh, it was very nice of him to allow me to do that and just, got a front row seat to one of the most dramatic, you know, the most dramatic settings in all of golf. And that's, we understand the stress of q School. Now this was second stage, but it was stressful. Uh, Jonas Blixt, I believe, was one of the guys that got through to give you a, kind of a timeline on that. And then uh, Vari McKay, young uh, young Stanford standout, LPGA player. Uh, I had met her another week that I caddied for Greg Powers out at Pebble Beach in their fall event, and uh, I had known Vari Mackay's name, and it's not spelled Vari Mackay. That is not what it looks like. <laughs> so I saw it, and I went up to her and said, you know, I said, hey, Vari, and she just lit up because somebody knew how to say her name. And uh, and so we, we had a, developed a good relationship that week, and she came to town, sure enough, to play in the Chick-fil-A charity championship one year without a caddy. She called me up, said, hey, can you, you know, are you free? Can you carry the bag? And because, now there there's one, Chris, where she had met me as a caddy. So this could have taken off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I came. Uh, I was like, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't wait. Uh, among the folks we played a practice round with, played a practice round with Natalie Gulbis. Michelle Wee was in that field. I remember she teed off right in front of us. Uh, and I made sure to get over there to see. I wanted to stand on the first tee with Michelle Wee, because I wanted to see how tall she was. I feel like one of the not to get sidetracked, but one of the great injustices in her career was all of the all of the exaggeration. The, the media didn't do her any favors. You know, by the time that she was 15 years old, I think we had her at about six four. I'm not sure, I'm just like goodness gracious, we're not. We can't even get her height right if we're not helping this young lady in any way. Somebody said, you know, hey, we should put her on the Ryder Cup. I'm like, "Pipe down. Uh, you know, you're not you're not helping her. So I remember sauntering over just to get a look at her, and uh, she was very tall. <laughs> I didn't bring out the measuring tape and measure her. I'm 6'2". She was not as tall as me at the time. She was probably also not done growing, but she was very tall. Uh, so, so that's my, uh, that's my catting experience, all with friends. Uh, Bari was, I had a tie for the lead very early in that tournament. I watched the red light on the camera come on.
0: Uh, luckily she
1: didn't, <laughs> but, uh, but no, it was great. I've had, I've had a blast.
0: So Brian, you eventually make the transition over to broadcasting to all of our benefit. by the way, how did that opportunity come about?
1: Well, I was doing it. I was doing it the whole time. Really, all the caddy opportunities came up because of the broadcast. These were guys, uh, folks that I had worked with. You know, met Vari out there at Pebble Beach because I was caddying for a guy that I had worked with. Um, When I was 17, Dan Patrick was working for CNN. And this is my best story. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, Chris, this is it. Uh, I'll do as long as you want on the podcast, but this is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the one you want to hear. <laughs> so uh 17 years old, high school freshman, not a high school freshman, college freshman, uh not because I was smarter but because they let us start school early in Florida. So I graduated as a 17 year old, I start over at Kennesaw State as a 17 year old and uh and and Dan Patrick worked at CNN. And a lot of people don't even know who Dan Patrick is anymore the young people and they don't remember that he worked CNN before going to ESPN, and he was doing local sports at 96 Rock, and I uh, worked with Christopher Rude and Lorna Love and a guy named Radical Bradford. That was the morning show, and, and I loved this. I loved the show, and Dan Patrick was doing the, you know, once or twice a week he'd do the morning sports update, uh, and it's a music show, so they didn't really care. But Dan fit in because he's very funny, and he would fit in anywhere. So. He's going to leave to go to ESPN and he's not going to be able to do the local sports gigs anymore. So, uh, so 96 Rock has a contest to replace him. And, and a friend of mine from high school called me up and, uh, and she actually made this phone call twice. I have a lot, I owe her a lot to be, the beginning of my career. She called me up and said, Hey, they're owning this contract, the contest for a sports announcer at 96 Rock. You should, you should check it out. So I did. And and they had I won. I was one of the people that won and got to come in and do sports on ninety six rock. Which for a seventeen year old who wanted to do this for a living was a gigantic break. Because oh, now yeah. I had something oh, it's something real exactly it's something real to put on my resume. Uh now the contest was was kind of a bogus contest to begin with. They they were never gonna take the winner. They had already hired Jeff Hollinger who was a sports anchor here in town. Uh, He would go on to become the play-by-play guy for the Falcons, and I believe they were the Falcons' flagship for a while. So the whole thing was in the works. We know how talented Jeff Hollinger is. By the way, a golf nut, Jeff Hollinger. Uh, So I don't mind not actually getting the gig that they gave to him, who was infinitely more talented than I was. Uh, It just was great that I got to win the contest and uh, and that, you know, but that that was something I could put on my resume so that years later when they started 790 The Zone, they started a sports radio station and the same young lady called me and said, hey, they're doing a sports station here in town. You should check it out. I could call and I was the guy that won Dan Patrick's job. And at least that got somebody to to spend a little more time with you on the phone. There was everybody wanted to work there. I at least had something that their interests and was was able to get a little foothold in there so uh just very lucky and i owe it all to that young lady who does not return my phone (laughs) call it was a high school we were high school flames chris where she's married with kids i'm married with kids i don't even know if she knows how instrumental she was with those two phone calls but uh but there you go
0: brian like i said in your intro you're the standard now by what great hosts sound and act like. Talk about your style. How did you develop your style?
1: Well, uh, you're very kind to say that. Uh, I watched, I, I became a golf junkie because of all this and uh, uh, loved Jim gymnasts. And he was working with Ken Venturi at the time. They had Faraday and McCord on the golf course. And, you know, those guys were irreverent and they knew their stuff and, and quite funny. Um. The, uh, the ABC crew at the time was Mike Tarico, who was just tremendous. And when he didn't do it, Terry Gannon did it. You know, we all know how good Terry Gannon is. Um, and, and Tarico was working with Azinger and Faldo. So, you know, pretty strong team there. And of course, the NBC crew had Dan Hicks and Johnny Miller. Uh, so those are the guys that I decided to, you know, really pay attention to. Plus on PGA Tour Radio. We had guys like Dave Douglas, an old US, uh, WSB veteran, uh, who was just just a tremendous, solid sports guy. Grant Boone was one of the voices on PGA Tour Radio. Uh, I learned a lot about professionalism from Grant Boone. guy like DeWitt Long, same thing, who was just ultimately funny. So I was just surrounded by good people, was in a position where I could soak it all in. And then when it came my time, I think you heard a little bit of, of all of those guys, uh, and, and what I do. And the fact is when we're doing radio, which is, that's, that's a big part of my gigs now, but, uh, when we're doing radio, the audience doesn't have time for a ton of shtick. I mean, they're busy. They're, they're doing something. You're not watching it. There's so many facts that we have to give you just to paint the picture that we don't, have time to get mired in a lot of the background information and the color information. Uh, it allows me to just be factual and basic, uh, which is nice. I, I loved Skip Carey growing up. I, I delivered pizzas when we had Skip Carey and Pete Manweir and Ernie Johnson doing radio for the Braves. Uh, you know that that that's the style error. and those guys were all business. Now there was a sense of humor that you would hear from time to time in there, but. You know, these were these were bad, brave years too. You know, so uh, so my style is: look, I'm going to give you the information you want. Uh, I'm going to give it to you as cleanly as possible, and then if there's some time left over for a nugget or a joke, you know, we got to get my color guy in there. But if if we get done with what you need to know, then we'll give you something that we want you to know. Uh, because of that, you know, the role is pretty well defined, and and I like that. Low definition makes, uh, makes it easy for me.
0: And Brian, you're also great at being the point person during a golf tournament, during those broadcasts. So how do you develop the ability to have the producer in one ear telling you this, that, and the other? You're listening to that person. You're also talking to somebody who's out on the golf course. You're also listening to what they have to say, all without you know, missing a beat. Talk about developing that skill.
1: Uh, There's just, you know, it's weird, Chris. You're very kind to put it that way. That is a skill that is completely useless in the rest of regular life, except at the drive-thru. The whole car can tell me their order while I'm talking to the speaker, (laughs) and and we're going to get it. (laughs) Uh, That's the only place in real life uh, that ability comes up. You know, there are guys, it comes up in radio more than, more than in TV because silence is okay in TV. Silence can be your friend. So the producers can pick their spots and I can just be quiet and listen to what they're saying. But on the radio, I've been very fortunate to have some incredibly talented people in my ear. And it's, it's really just a, just a couple of them over the years. And we've had long stretches. It started with a guy named Marion Stratford. It's just trust. That's the word. It becomes trust. I trust that he's not telling me something at a time when I'm going to have to do something else. You know, during a winning call, they're not talking to us. They're not talking to us. I also trust that what he says is implicitly true and important, because a lot of times, much like Ron Burgundy, I'm just going to repeat it. I'm not actually going to run it through the filter. I'm just going to say it. Uh, lately, and when I say lately, I mean for the last 20 years, to a guy by the name of Jeremy Davis, who is just the absolute best at this in the business, uh, television or radio, period. Uh, it's so much harder on the radio. That's why I say that. No offense to, to the, uh, you know, to the Tommy Roy's of the world, um, you know, or the Keith Hirschlands. Radio's harder than TV, and they'll tell you that. Uh, Jeremy Davis is just incredible. And then there's another guy that has worked with Jeremy. I've worked with him for just as long, named Justin Ware. And, and we just know each other. We love each other. We've been doing this for so long. They trust me and I trust them. And you don't get it overnight. And so that's how that skill gets developed. They're very good at picking their spots to talk in my head. I've gotten used to them in my head. Uh, And the only other time it ever comes up is we we will do conference calls for SiriusXM from time to time. And so I'll be over at Dogwood playing with my guys and I'll have the the phone in the you know has the little earbud in, and they're like, "How can you play while you're doing a conference call?" Because uh, I have to participate in the conference call. Well, first of all, everyone on the conference call understands that I'm on the golf course and they're they're cool with it because it's a golf call, which is nice. And second of all, the people that are talking are the people that have been talking in my head for 20 years, <laughs> so <laughs> it's not a big deal. <laughs>
0: You mentioned Keith Hursland Who's a good friend of the show Talk about working with Keith So I've never worked with Keith
1: (laughs) How about that, sorry, next question Yeah, no, no, it's uh, Of all the, I love Keith I read his book, his book is fantastic I've worked with so many people that have worked with Keith I I definitely am familiar With his style, I watched so much Of what he did, I love the old Canadian tour Broadcast that he was doing back when they did the Myrtle Beach swing and they did the Texas swing. They played everywhere but Canada for one summer and Herschelin did all those. Uh, He was, he was such a visionary for the stuff he tried to do and the stuff that he did. And uh, Jerry Folt is a good friend and I know he and Keith are close. Uh, So, so I've never, I've worked in my life. I've worked two hours of my entire life for the golf channel where I was getting paid. Now, a lot of our stuff on PGA Tour Live shows up on the Golf Channel. I've done plenty of projects that have been on the Golf Channel. But as far as where, and this is, nobody really cares, but as far as where the paycheck comes from, there's only been one t- one gig, and it was one hour a day for two days, where they were actually testing some equipment in Atlanta. They needed a guy to come over and help them out. It was at the East Lake Cup, and it was not with their television broadcast, the East Lake Cup. It was just they were testing something, some stuff that I believe they actually are using now. Um, but the funny thing was they had, to, they actually had to pay me and I never, I was not in their system. And the guy that called me about it is like, you, you have to be in our system, right? And i was like, I'm not in your system. I've never just, the, the streams never lined up to where I never got, I, you know, I never got a call from them. I never, you know, only had a couple of meetings, just the times they needed people. I was doing stuff. The times I wasn't doing stuff, they didn't need people. Uh, so the funny part about this, I worked one hour, one day, one hour, the next day. And I got like eight shirts and three pullovers.
0: <laughs> I got
1: I got enough golf channel merchandise to last me a year. <laughs> so they're very generous people. Uh super nice. But I never got a chance to actually have Keith Hirschland in my head.
0: Brian, let's switch gears a little bit. Live golf is dominating the golf world right now, and it, it kind of feels like Perhaps Jay Monahan grossly underestimated what threat that uh, live golf was going to become. Are you surprised where we're at right now with this whole thing? Uh, yes and no. So I will I will take issue with that. I don't I don't know that Jay
1: underestimated the threat. Uh, and, and here's why I will say that. I, I know why it looks like that. It definitely looks like the tour should do more. And I it was one of the questions they asked those guys when they were in Portland. Hey, should the tour have done more? And they all said yes and then the things that they listed that the tour should have done were not pay them 125 million dollars which was the only way they were coming you know they came for the money we know why they came so let's not pretend that the tour was deficient in one way or the other, uh, or the other. you want to tell me that the tour could have been run more efficiently at the top level or that you might th- there might be a, you know a percentage here or there where you could do things better yeah I, i'm not going to argue with that of course Every business could probably be run more efficiently. But this the live Group at this point, as you and I are talking, they're at least a billion into players, just the players. We haven't played our third event yet, but as we're talking, they're going to play here in a couple of days. Uh, we've, we've played two events. They're a billion dollars in. They don't even have their 48 guys. The point is you are not going to be able to play defense to get this. I don't care who you are or what organization you were with or what you were doing. You weren't going to be able to defend against this influx of money. Uh, so I I disagree with the fact that the tour got caught sleeping by this. And then the other side of that is the more the tour did early, which we would all, I think at this point, like for them to have done, uh, the more legitimacy they were bringing to a project that may or may not actually have a whole lot of legitimacy to it. So they had to be very careful by not overreacting. That's, that's very common, as you know, especially in the PR world. You know, don't, don't tell us about your feud with so-and-so because we haven't heard about We, we heard about your feud from you. And if you hadn't have told us, we wouldn't have known. So there was some of that early going for the PGA Tour. There was nothing that was going to keep this group from playing this schedule the way they have it laid out. Nothing. They're not worried about profitability. They have the money. So they were going to get to this point, in my opinion, no matter what.
0: So let's take that a step further, because from what I'm hearing from guys on the inside over at Live, is they've got a six, ten-year plan, So this doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, and they're telling me that they're blowing their six-year plan out of the water already. So is this a scenario where is there a way back? Let me let me change it a little bit, Brian. Is there a way back? Can Monahan and Greg Norman get in a room and hammer things out and come together? And you know, I love your ideas. Let let me enhance what we're doing with what some of the things you're doing. And there's a kumbaya at some point, or do you think these guys are in it lives in it for the long term? Greg Norman has been trying to stick it to the tour since the '90s, and we're in some sort of bizarro world now, where these two entities are going to coexist, and golf as we've known it for a hundred years is now different.
1: Yeah, I first of all, I think I like the way you put it. I think that Jay Monahan at this point owes it to his membership to pick up the phone because they are playing and they are going to keep playing. I don't know how long they're going to keep playing for, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be till the end of this calendar year. So this, this injection of money into the game, Rory said it, if somebody's willing to inject billions into our game, we ought to probably talk with them. So I believe it's up to Jay to go ahead and have that conversation. Greg has said all along that he's open to that conversation. I think the tour had to view it as a hostile threat. Uh they had to kind of ignore it. I'm not sure what missteps they've taken because again, nothing was going to keep us from being right here and having this discussion right now. Uh they can say on their side on the live side of things they're way ahead of their plan. That's uh, I, I don't know what that means. You got all the money in the world. How could you possibly be ahead of it? How, how could you be behind plan? <laughs> you know, what? how could you have <laughs> messed this up? <laughs> you got you got unlimited funds. Uh, you, you can't, you can't mess it up. All you had to do is have modest, modest goals. Uh, so, so yeah, I think there's plenty of ways that they can work together if both sides really want to. So the tour didn't want to early. I think there's plenty of reasons for them to, to want to now, if nothing else, as Rory said, if somebody's going to throw billions at us, we probably should, should get our share of it. And then the question is, Greg has said all along that he wants to. And I think you got to call him out on it. I think it's time to find out. Can they go? I mean, the tour is about ready to back off of the fall. You know, they're about to feed about three months of time to. Well, can Greg live with that? You know, I'm pardon the pun. Can, can they do something with that? And and now all of a sudden they, they can have those three months to do it as they want. Is that going to step on the European tour's toes cuz I I think it probably will. European tour kind of plays through that stretch. Uh can we can we balance this out? Uh yes, I think we can. Is, but is that enough for Greg? They just announced this morning as you and I are talking that they are intending to do 14 events for 2023. Well, you can't fit 14 in. That that's not going to work and then coexist with the other tours. Uh you could do 6 you might even be able to do
0: eight. So, Brian, as you mentioned, the want to. I'm also hearing that the Women's Live golf entity is a done deal, that they're, they are down that path. And unlike maybe Monahan at the beginning, LPGA Commissioner Molly Marcus Simon is willing to work with Greg Norman to work out a joint effort and what that might look like. And, and I've talked to people like Susie Whaley and other players out on the LPGA tour. And and they know, I mean, if Liv comes swooping in with crazy amounts of money, the LPGA tour is dead. How do you think that that thing is going to play out between coming together? Could that be a model? Hey, look, here's here's how we work together, you know, cohesively with the LPGA tour. Could that be something that goes over and helps them come together with the PGA tour?
1: Oh yeah, sure. Uh, That's, so there's a lot of angles there. First of all, the PGA Tour has a marketing partnership with the LPGA Tour and that should have been commission if it wasn't and I don't know if it was or wasn't. Should have been one of Commissioner Monahan's first calls is is over to the LPGA Tour say, "Hey, you guys, we're going to we're in, here's three events, you know, whatever it is to lock them down." The problem is, you can't lock them down. And that's where you get to the other angle of this and that's the socioeconomic geopolitical This because it all always becomes political side of things. Uh, You know, there's supposed to be some backlash. You know, what what about human rights? What about women's rights in Saudi Arabia? That's that's what we were hearing from a whole lot of folks very early on in this. Well, that seems to have gone away. And I heard the same thing you did with, believe actually, uh, one of the LPGA players said it into a microphone. Hey, if they threw money at us like that, we're we're all going. And, right. and I understand, you know, the LPJ tour has been, has been underfunded and underappreciated for a long time. If they got funded and appreciated, you know, they're in, and I don't blame them. So, so yeah, I, is it a step, a first step towards possible coexistence? Yeah, you would hope so. That would be, that would be awful nice, but I, I back up a half a step. Where's the outrage? Why is it okay for the women to go, but it wasn't okay for Phil to go? Nobody really feels bad for Phil. I'm not telling you to you're supposed to feel bad for Phil. But remember when everybody hated Phil and why they hated him? Well, why aren't we going to hate all the LPGA players for going? You know, why aren't we going to hate Molly marcuse Soman for answering that phone call? You know, where's all the hate? It would be wonderful if all the hate's just gone. But I think the golf world's going to owe Phil Mickelson a gigantic apology. And I'm not a Phil Mickelson apologist. But I think a whole lot of folks are going to have to be because there's a whole lot of social justice warriors out there that were saying, oh, this would never happen if the women were involved. This would never happen, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, now apparently everybody's involved. And honestly, it's a little annoying to me that as soon as the money started getting it gets aimed in your direction, then your your outrage goes away. (laughs) And And that's that's a whole lot of folks in this game that were taking strong stands until they got a check written to them. And uh, it's just annoying. Uh, would it be good for golf? Uh, would it be good for the women's game? Well, if the money's going to stick around, it would be good for the women's game. The problem is what happens when the funding dries up, because this cannot make financial sense. What what you need is the, the crown print here to say, well, look, I just love golf, and I'm going to support it forever. Well, I don't know what forever is, but I bet you he's got enough money to do it. But you right. can't have them all of a sudden have to make sense because you can't, you can't get profitable with the amount of money you spent just on the players, just on the men's side right now. There's not a TV deal in the world that's going to bail you out of that. There's not sponsorships in the world that's going to bail you out of that. So they're already into the world of make-believe as far as funding's concerned. And I'm not mad at them for it. But you can't balance the books. So questioning the future, I think, is these are the right questions to ask. How long, but you say, how long can they keep it up? They can keep it up as long as this guy wants because they're making all the money they need. How long is he going to choose to keep it up? Because as soon right. as he pulls out, we can't keep writing checks this big anymore.
0: So, to take the outrage piece, I mean, it's curious to get your thought. I mean, all of a sudden, right? Anytime you start <laughs> pointing a finger at somebody else, right? The The social detectives, are going to get out there and they're going to start trying to look into your background and figure out, you know, what skeletons you're hiding. And so we know now that FedEx has pumped in four hundred million dollars into infrastructure and developing business over in Saudi Arabia. Heck, the LPGA Tour, (laughs) talk about human rights issues. The LPGA Tour had a tournament scheduled in Shanghai, China, a country or continent, however you want to look at it, that we had a diplomatic uh a boycott of for the for the Olympics. So now all of a sudden, you know, hey, you can't have outrage because of the Saudi money when your biggest sponsor in the and in the title sponsor to your playoff system is injecting four hundred million dollars into that country. And you've got an LPGA tour that was scheduled to play a tournament over in China. So like all of this stuff now starts to come out. I think that starts to water down the outrage. I don't know. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think you just nailed it, uh, and and that's exactly what we've seen. And again, that's why I, I circle Phil Mickelson, because he was the he took the brunt of it. Uh, now he's got plenty of other problems besides that 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 he's battling, and I wish him all the best. Uh, I don't know what's going on with Phil, but I mean we've all heard at least ten rumors, and if any one of them are true. Then I, you know, I wish him the best battling all that because I've gotten plenty of joy out of watching Phil Mickelson play the game over the years. You know, I don't wish any ill will toward him. Uh, I think he got absolutely unjustifiably hammered in this situation. And you're right; some of the early players over there were saying the same thing. I can tell you this. So you already know I hosted the Ryder Cup this past right. fall, and the world is aware. Whether you know, nobody has to walk around knowing this, but the world is aware that my 18th tower analyst was Greg Norman. Yep. Uh, the, the masters that spring, same thing. I'm the host, yep. he's the analyst. So I've you know i spent plenty of time with Greg Norman. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Greg Norman. I've had many conversations with Greg Norman that you're not going to hear about on this podcast.
0: <laughs>
1: but I will, I will share. I mean, look, just because I respect him as a human being, yeah, he's got. Uh, he told his story that outlined the the World Golf Championships. He told that on the air about the, the 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 pitch meeting about the World Golf Championships and and how that went. That that's all out in the public eye. Is he is he bothered by it? Yes. Is that what's driving him here? Yes and no. It's not it's not everything. It's not just a bone to pick. But I will tell you this, and I, and I hope Greg wouldn't get offended. I've never shared any details from from any of our talks about this, Uh, and and this is not, I can just tell you that that his attitude is one from a golf perspective. And I think it's because from a business perspective, he saw everything you just said. He saw that the world is already doing business with this country. Uh, He has met these folks. Now, is there something that could change his mind and make him change his stance? I bet there is because he's a reasonable person. He just hasn't heard it or seen it yet. And apparently the whole rest of the world hasn't heard it or seen it yet because everybody's doing business with him. So why not me? I want to make the game better. He truly believes this. I can tell you that he truly believes this. You can tell me he's wrong. Fine. But he truly believes that he's trying. He's attempting to make the game better. He played his first professional event on the Asian tour. And you remember the first steps of this were, the Asian Tour getting a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of financial investment. That hated view could say is all well, they had to buy their world golf ranking points from the Asian Tour. All right, maybe, maybe it's a little nostalgic though. Greg has ties to the Asian Tour. It's where he first started to play. I know he he thinks about it in glowing terms. So Greg's not worried about the political side of this. Greg is worried about the business side of this. Now, I have the same the same problem that you know, I, I, and I mentioned this to him. When we talked about it, same problem now that I had that. What's the future look like? You know, are, are you ruining one thing in order to build up another thing? And uh, is the other thing going to go away? Well, he doesn't think that it. That's he doesn't think about it that way. He doesn't think that's what's going to happen. I don't I personally don't believe he would do this if he thought that was what was going to happen. So I, that's just a little insight into the man that said. I'm working for the PGA Tour this week. I've worked for the PGA Tour for over 20 years. Uh, I would like this. I would like this put behind us. You know, I would like this figured out. I agree with Rory. There's an influx of money into the game. We should talk about it. You know, we, we should talk about how we're going to make this work for us. You know, that that's where I'm at. And I think that's where a lot of folks are at. I, I don't like the distraction. I really do enjoy the PGA tour. I love 72 holes. I love the compet- the competition. I love the history. I'm not afraid of something new, but I don't want to lose something old because I think what the PGA tour is doing and, and has been doing is unbelievable. Over 2 billion to charity. Come on. Right. So, so I'm a big fan of what they're doing, but, but I happen to know the guy on the other side. I happen to know him personally simply because work put us together. And, uh, and he's not the demon that he has made out to be.
0: Brian, just a couple more before I let you go. Let's switch gears again and getting back to you. You've been a part of so many great things in the game. What are some of the things as you look back on that you're most proud of?
1: Uh, well, I've gotten a chance to spend enough time with Tiger now. Uh, just, just some of the little moments that I've spent with Tiger for years. I've called. I can't even tell you how many wins I've called his he's got eighty two it's not half, <laughs> but i'm I mean I' actually probably have called more than half, but i, I mean, walked with him a whole bunch of them got the chance to do the winners interview with that man who i you know that that's the greatest player that i mean he was so much better than his competition competition that was better than we had ever seen before, and he was so much better than than Each chance you get covering a guy like that is gonna be special, so the tiger moments are gonna be special. I can tell you that Tiger's got a, a a wicked sense of humor uh, that I have always appreciated. Uh, I feel bad for the fact that he just can't, you know, for most of his career, he couldn't stop walking, you know, you just couldn't, because as soon as you stop walking, they were going to crush you. Everybody that, that was looking at you is going to come up and they all have a, a little story they want to tell you about the one time that you did this and they were standing there watching. He would still be in Milwaukee in 1996 if he stopped and talked to everybody. He, you know, he just he just couldn't. You know, he just he would never get anywhere. So I feel bad because I think he really would love to talk to people. I know he loves talking to people. I've seen him love talking to people. So, eh, you know, the fact that I got to cover the greatest is uh, is the thing I think I'm going to be most grateful for.
0: So along those same lines. When you look back on some of the moments and the, the tournaments and the people that you've talked to, are there some memories that, you know, boy, when you reflect back, still bring a smile to your face?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, how about the 2019 Masters? Um, my son, so my son, who is 19 now, not a golf fan, plays a little bit, but, you know, he's, he's okay. He doesn't really, It's just not, he doesn't live this. Um, he wanted to go to East Lake when Tiger won the tour championship and everybody followed him up the 18th fairway. Uh, so they come home from church and, uh, and, and I'm like, okay, Hey, looks like Tiger's going to win. Why don't we, uh, why don't we head on out? And he's like, I, I wanted to see it. I wanted it to be a little closer because Tiger was like five or six shots up at the turn. So Henry was 14 at the time, something like that, 15 at the time. So I'm not going to force him to go to a golf tournament if he didn't want to go. And he just gave me enough to know that he didn't want to go. So we didn't go. And then, you know, it gets close. And then that scene happens at the end. And we would have been right in the middle of it. So there's one that I missed. But what that, that led to was right after he turned, right after he got his driver's license, and he still hadn't really spent any time on the road, on the highway. We get to April of the 2019 Masters. And he wants to come watch because once again, Tiger's in contention and my position is out there at 15 and 16. And, uh, and there's just no way logistically that I'm going to be able to get back to Atlanta and get him and come back over. He's going to have to make the drive himself and he's going to have to find his way in himself and he could find me himself. But we're putting a lot on a 16 year old kid and he was, he lived up to, and I'll never forget seeing him come across the crosswalk. So I know he's there because, you know, you're sitting at Augusta. There's no phones either. Not like I can get texts from my wife saying he's here, he's there. He can't text me if he wants any help. He's just got to get it done. So I'm proud of my 16-year-old son for getting it done and getting there. And then he comes up and he stands next to me in our position. And he had never seen a hole-in-one before. And Justin Thomas made a hole-in-one while he was there. So he watched that. So I'm just so thrilled for him. And then. Here comes Tiger, and he birdies 15, and I'm getting goosebumps even telling you again. Uh, You know, that shot that he hits at 16, it's just perfect, and I thought it was going to go in, and Henry thought it was going to go in, and Tiger thought it was going to go in, and that leads to him winning, and all of that hullabaloo, you know, and being caught up in that moment, well, we were there. And I was there with my son, who very much wanted to be there, and was a little bit lamenting that he had missed that win at East Lake. Well, you know, how could you possibly top what happened at East Lake? Well, this is how. Mm-hmm. And so, on so many levels, that is a day that I will never forget. And you know, it just tells you, you know, I've, been, I've again very fortunate to be doing this during the Tiger Woods era, because. So many of those moments transcend because you think of little things like, oh, my son had just gotten his driver's license, you know, things like that that we wouldn't think of for a run-of-the-mill major championship if such a thing exists, (laughs) you know, but but when it was Tiger, it was a little more special than we remember.
0: Well, Brian, before I let you go, remind our listeners again, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, follow you on social media, and then, Obviously listen to the show and listening to you cover you know, golf tournaments for the rest of the year.
1: Well, I'll be on PGA Tour Live for the Rocket Mortgage Classic. <laughs> We're start at sun up on uh, you know pretty much every day. Can't wait for that. Uh working a few more PGA Tour lives this year. Uh very excited about those. That's a that's a whale of a project. John McGinnis and I are on SiriusXM PGA Tour Radio every every afternoon. Now, if they're playing a a golf tournament on a Thursday or Friday, we're not on. But if they're not playing a golf tournament, we are on. So uh, weekdays, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. That is, uh, we were told, the most listened to golf show in the world. I don't know how you could ever prove that, but I also don't know how you could ever disprove that. (laughs) So I'll take it. (laughs) <laughs> we got 33 million subscribers and we're on in the afternoon. So, uh that's pretty good. Uh so I, I don't I don't think we have everybody listening at the same time, but I can't tell you for sure. So, uh and he's just a tremendous partner and, you know, on locally in Atlanta, 680 the Fan on Sunday mornings. Been doing that show for a long long time and uh thankfully, thanks to folks like yourself Oh, pretty much just you, uh, and you're so overwhelmingly positive on the social medias. Uh, people can find me on Twitter at bktrick. Now I don't never tweet anything, but uh, but thanks to you, you uh, you pump me up. So uh, so I'm over there, and maybe someday I'll tweet something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you're the best, my friend. I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time and coming and being a part of the show. I hope I get the privilege. I'm catching up with you again sometime soon.
1: Well, we got to play golf. I mean, you you live in the area that I grew up in, so it's just amazing the coincidence that uh, you're across town. So we got to fix that, and we will.
0: I look forward to that. I'm going to hold you to it, my friend, Brian. All, all right. the best to you okay. and your family. Looking forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Chris. You too. Take care, Brian. Hey, next on the Teen Nation, thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the show. What's coming up in the next 55 or so minutes is probably one of the most joyful, positive segments that I've ever done. I get to have time with Brian Kachuk, who is just so great at what he does. He is the standard by which the rest of us, I know, at least in my opinion, should be trying to live up to. He's the best in the business whether it's co-hosting his regular radio show, Katrick and McGinnis with John McGinnis, which you can hear on Sirius XM channel 92, which you can hear during the week, or if it is captaining, if you will, a golf tournament and sending you out to the action so we can hear what's going on. Brian is just the absolute gold standard of what we hear on radio. And uh, I'm privileged to get to spend some time with him. It, Like I say, is just one of the best hours over the eight years of doing this show. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. That is the great Brian Katrick. And boy, I can't imagine a more fun nearly hour that I just spent in uh, talking to Brian. What a wonderful human being. He is funny. He's knowledgeable. He makes every broadcast that he is a part of better. And his show with John McGinnis, Katrick and McGinnis on tap on Sirius XM channel 92 is a lot of fun. I listen to them on my drive home in the evenings. But Brian's a wonderful individual, and I am very blessed to get that much time with him. I hope I get the opportunity of having him back on the show again soon because, like I say, it just, he's the gold standard. It doesn't get any better than Brian Katrick. Looking forward to catching up with him again soon.